Now, in conducting a necropsy examination, there are several principles that are uh, really important. And the first of these is, as with any scientific endeavor, it's necessary to proceed with a standard approach every time to, to perform the same uh, activities to open the animal the same way to uh, to proceed in the same um, the same organized manner each time, and this is really important uh, because um, it's very easy to become distracted, open the carcass, find a, a lesion, and go for that, and and not pay attention to everything else. It um, and and as a result, you can miss a lot of information. It's also important to proceed in a consistent, systematic manner every time because that allows the prosector over time, as you do more and more necropsies, to get a really good appreciation of the, the variation of normal. And it's the variation in normal that can provide you with, um, with some confidence when you recognize or state that uh, something is abnormal. And in the gross postmortem uh, technique, it's not necessary for the prosexer to exactly know precisely what a lesion is. It's necessary to know that something is out of the normal range. Once you know that, then you can hone in on that um, and uh, and do additional tests, whatever. But it's really important to recognize the abnormal. And in order to do that, it's necessary to have some appreciation of what the uh, what the normal variation is. And to to give an example of that, uh, an organ such as the spleen, uh, of course, is is very variable in its in its uh, size and sometimes even its coloration, depending upon how the animal died. If it was euthanized with barbiturates, if um, uh, if it was septicemic, um, and and even uh, normal animal in different physiologic states will have uh, considerable variation in the in the size of the spleen, and so uh, recognizing that the spleen is abnormal is is uh, something that's really important. Another principle of uh, necropsy examination is to expose the internal organs with minimal disturbance and contamination. What you're really trying to do during the um, the gross postmortem examination is to uh, assess that animal in as close a situation as you can to the way it was when it was alive. And so um, you want to be able to uh, look at the organs without overly disturbing the anatomy. And um, in fact, there may be times when you wish to uh, reconstruct the the um, the animal after uh, various parts being removed. For example, uh, when trying to assess the displacement of the gut or the relationships between uh, between abdominal organs uh, in in a uh, volvulus or a torsion that's occurred, uh, there may be situations where you wish to put the organs back in and, and examine the relationships. And and uh, so by exposing the internal organs with uh, minimal disturbance uh, and contamination. Uh, you're able to to do that fairly easily. And then another principle is that you want to yield the best specimens possible for ancillary tests, such as uh, bacteriology, histology, um, PCR, what, whatever 
uh, tests you're you're doing. And so, um, opening the animal in a in a um, uh, consistent way with minimal disturbance and uh, uh, with minimal contamination allows you to do that. So um, the um, next item that I think really is is important for um, for the, the practitioner to consider is uh, euthanasia and the and the changes that it may uh, make on the um, on the the effect it may have on the postmortem examination. But but first, uh, I just wanted to to mention that. Um, there are a couple of issues around euthanasia that are important to to think about, and I'm not going to uh, go at all into any uh, techniques of euthanasia. That's not the, the purpose of this. And there are some excellent um, uh, practitioner uh, guides available. When when an animal has died, either uh, following euthanasia or um, or in uh, in natural circumstances. Um, it's uh, it's important to consider the the changes that occur in the body um, immediately uh, at the time of death, and and one of these, of course, is uh, hypoxia or uh, anoxia, as um, uh, as an animal dies. Um, the the problem is that hypoxia can occur uh, prior to death as part of a uh, the disease process, and so um, a bit of experience is required in in looking at animals that have died uh, to assess whether the uh, condition of the the blood indicates uh, pre-existing hypoxia or not. And this comes back to uh, what I was saying earlier about uh, proceeding in a consistent manner every time. If you if you're used to looking and have a uh, gross postmortem the same way every time. Then uh, you will, uh, by by making those observations and and uh, tying them back to the clinical history and clinical observations, start to uh, appreciate the differences that uh, can occur when there is um, a significant degree of hypoxia before an animal dies, um, as opposed to hypoxia occurring at the time of death. Uh, and, and characteristically, if there's been profound hypoxia um, prior to the animal dying, or um, or at the time of death, uh, natural death, for example, an animal that has choked to death or has had some form of respiratory obstruction, um, you'll notice that the the blood is um, is very very dark and uh, unclotted even in the major vessels and uh, uh, and the heart. Whereas um, an animal has just recently died and has been um, uh, had normal uh, oxygenation of the blood, will usually have a brighter color of blood in general, and, and certainly brighter in the uh, uh, in the ventricles of the heart, left ventricle in particular. Um, there will also be some metabolic changes that occur when an animal dies slowly, and uh, often these are also related to hypoxia. Uh, swelling of the um, the liver to some extent, paleness certainly of liver and kidneys uh, can occur, and uh, and these uh, these can be pre-existing uh, changes. There is um, almost always some aspiration of of um, uh, material from in ruminants certainly uh, when an animal dies and 
uh, and certainly if they're moved uh, prior to necropsy examination or even if they're uh, rolled over or if there's been some degree of bloating um, prior to the uh, post-mortem examination following death, then you will have um, the, you will have material that is um, forced upwards into the esophagus uh, and sometimes will be uh, down into the tracheolarynx. And differentiating this from aspiration uh, occurring prior to death is um, pretty important and um, usually requires histologic or other examination to, to look deeper into the lung and the airways and see what reaction is there. Although uh, if an animal has aspirated and developed pneumonia, uh, that will usually be fairly, um, fairly evident. Uh, pneumonia due to uh, aspiration occurring uh, prior to death will um, will in many cases be in the the right anterior lung lobe because that's the first airway that branches off the trachea and uh, and so that uh, uh, is the lobe of lung that is most likely to be affected and often uh, by dissecting the airways one can see uh, small pieces of uh, gastric or rumen contents uh, actually in inflammatory debris in the in the uh, airways. Okay, so I just wanted to ask what both of you, for both of you, for both Nick and Maria, what are your top tips for practitioners when opening a carcass? If you could give your top three, that'd be just super. Um, Nick, do you want to start? Well, um, I, I think uh, the the top tips, the uh, top three tips would be first of all, uh, proceed in a in an organized and regular manner every time. Uh, the second major point is that you can see an awful lot um, with with uh, just a minimal number of incisions as long as you're paying attention. Um, when you when you open the carcass, make sure you look you actually look at everything, subcutaneous tissues, muscles, and um, and don't make the mistake of opening it, finding a lesion, and just honing in on that only. Uh, work through the postmortem and make sure you look at everything because if you only hone in on the first thing you see you may miss all kinds of stuff in fact you may miss the uh the main uh the main problem um and uh i guess the the only other thing is that uh, uh there's a few parts of it that require a little bit of practice um actually the most difficult part of uh, large animal postmortem is um, uh, removing the larynx by uh, managing to find the, the joint between the keratohyoid and the stylohyoid bone and and cutting through that often because you have to do it blind. But if you if you uh, follow the procedure that's in the uh, text that uh, that I prepared, then uh, uh, with a bit of practice you can do this quite easily, even though you can't see uh, the the joint or may not be able to based on on the how big the animal is. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, that might be one to practice at uh, maybe at the clinic or something before you uh, before you go out and try and look good in front of a client. Yes, right. <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask Maria the same question. Well, those are those are excellent tips. Uh, I, they're all summarized uh, in addition to uh, a couple of other points in a really excellent lab note that AHL has put out. It's lab note number two, and it's tips for practitioners for field postmortems. And I would echo uh, what Nick commented on that it's very critical to have good dedicated equipment, not just equipment that has seen better days. This needs to be 
uh, surgical level or surgical grade equipment that's used for the postmortem. It's very critical not to crush tissues, but to take appropriate samples and to minimize contamination as you are collecting samples for uh, microbiology as well as histology.